We have to think big to be able to have any chance of, of dealing with these issues. Hello, I'm your host James and welcome to All About Energy. Every episode we get together with an expert from the Centre for Energy Ethics, the University of St Andrews, and discuss some of the energy news, before going into an interview with a special guest from the world of energy. It is my pleasure to introduce a new co-host for this episode, PhD student in social anthropology with her work on knowledge sharing within anti-fracking activist communities in the UK, Sarah O'Brien. Hi, Sarah. Hi. Hi, James. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, So if you don't mind, uh, I'm going to go first. That's fine. Let's do it. So I'm going to begin the new segment with a question. Sarah, how much do you know about catalytic converters? Uh... Zero. Well, that's okay. So catalytic converters are primarily used in cars, and they employ a platinum group element, such as platinum, funnily enough, or palladium, as a catalyst. And that is a substance which helps facilitate a chemical reaction without being used up by that reaction. And it does so in order to remove harmful pollutants, such as carbon monoxide, nitrogen oxides, and other hydrocarbons, from the engine before they exit the exhaust pipe. The catalytic converter itself is made up of a ceramic support structure upon which a wash coat is applied through which the catalytic material is dispersed. So it's not made out of this rare and very expensive element, but it's kind of suspended in a paint that goes over the top. Right. So catalytic, catalytic, that's the word, converters... Are they typically then fitted on vehicles that we drive every day? Is that where you'd find them? Or is it on bigger sort of industrial? Uh, A catalytic converter, by law, has to be fitted to any car that you drive. And actually, it makes up a significant proportion of the cost of your car, is actually this one piece of equipment. Catalytic converters have been around for a while. Uh, They first came about in the 1970s, and even to this day, they remain the most important part of a car's emission control system. And in 1993, it became law for all petrol cars manufactured in the UK to have a catalytic converter fitted to meet European emission standards. Now, catalytic converters, as many of our audience may know, do not last forever. Because the catalyst itself is suspended in the wash coat and not fixed in place, The converters degrade over time, resulting in an increase in the emissions of harmful pollutants. Moreover, because they are made out of such rare elements, not only is replacement expensive, but the demand for new catalytic converters is a significant driving factor behind the environmentally harmful mining of platinum group metals. To put that in perspective, I've seen estimates that around 50% of all platinum mined gets used for this purpose. Therefore, Any advance which would extend the life of a catalytic converter would have significant environmental benefits on multiple fronts. And this, finally, is where my new story this episode comes in. So, our research team out of the University of St Andrews, led by last episode's guest, Professor John Irvine, has published a new study in Nature Chemistry on May 24th, in which they claim to have developed a new kind of catalyst which is more resistant to the kinds of degradation typical of other catalytic materials. By using a brand new technique which the team has named the Trojan Horse Method, 
These researchers have managed to sneak platinum into a ceramic structure in such a way that nanoparticles of catalytically active platinum emerge on the surface of that material. Because in this case the platinum has been incorporated into the ceramic structure, it is anchored in place, and as a result is more resistant to degradation. Therefore, it's the hope of these researchers that their new material will be able to somewhat curb the demand for platinum group elements, and also ensure that when we are using hydrocarbon fuels, whether that be biofuels or more traditional petrol or, or diesel, that we are burning more cleanly more often. Oh, great. But is it also used then in sort of industrial settings? Like, I don't know, to like mitigate harmful emissions from sort of, yeah, in, in, in industries rather than vehicles we drive? So it is the hope of this team, as far as I understand it, uh, and I should note that I'm currently working with the lead author of uh, this study uh, on a, uh, a blog post for the Center for Energy Ethics website. So it's my understanding that they hope that there is a, actually a wider application of this because as fossil fuels in particular are being kind of transitioned out, especially in the automobile industry, there's still going to be a demand for catalysis and these platinum group elements and there's also the thought that they might be useful in uh, fuel cells, or similar to those we talked about last episode. Hey, that's super interesting, James. Um, it reminds me of an interview of John Kerry, the US climate envoy, uh, where he was discussing carbon reductions needed to reach net zero. One thing he said that a lot of people sort of latched onto and were discussing was that you know, a lot of carbon emissions that we're counting on to reach net zero by 2050, which was what he was discussing, this reduction will come from technologies that are not invented yet. For a lot of climate activists I worked with, they considered this sort of technology optimism. They were sort of sceptical of it because they thought it would be encouraging more emissions or encouraging lifestyles and giving this illusion that we don't have to change lifestyle to reduce our emissions which I guess was John Kerry's point as well. You don't have to give up a way of life necessarily to get to net zero by 2050, which a lot of people I talk to would disagree with. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And do you have a, a news article for us this week? Yeah, so the news article I wanted to talk about takes us in a very different direction. It's about this uh, trial that happened about a month ago now and that got covered at the time by various newspapers and people that I met are sort of still discussing it, which is why it sort of came to mind. And it's quite fitting with the interview we'll have after this news piece. But it's a, a trial that happened in Southwark in London where a jury acquitted six environmental activists from Extinction Rebellion of causing criminal damage at Shell headquarters back in 2019. So what happened was... In April 2019, there was a series of protests and actions in London organized by Extinction Rebellion, and one of them was targeted at Shell headquarters. Activists glued themselves to the glass entrance, and they sprayed the walls, they broke some window panes, and two activists also scaled the roof of the entrance. And they stayed, the two activists up there stayed for 25 hours. Yeah, they, they all ple pleaded not guilty of criminal damage, but they did all also recognize the damage they caused. The judge of this case, 
I quote him in saying, he said, this case is very unusual uh, because all the defendants were recognizing they'd caused this damage, but yet they were pleading not guilty. And the judge directed the jury that, I quote him here, the activists don't have any defense in the law for the charges they face. So he was basically saying, you know, you might think that what they did was, was justified in some way, like morally and in other ways justified, but legally speaking, yeah, they, they have no defense in the law. So the, the jury retired and deliberated for seven hours and acquitted them. So it was a big surprise for a lot of the activists, but it was really a surprise and it doesn't happen often that it was so clear that they did cause this criminal damage and yet they were found not guilty by the jury. And it, I found it super interesting because to me it sort of speaks about the role of, of our legal system of, of the courts uh, when talking about climate change and when talking about responsibility for climate change and also echoes some stuff that I worked on in my fieldwork, you know, how people interact with these courts intentionally or not. So here it was a strategy from the activists. They caused damage worth more than £5,000. I can't recall exactly the, the total, but it was deliberate that it was quite high. That way this case could be escalated to a crown court with a jury rather than go through a magistrate's court. And that's what the activists were looking for. They wanted a jury to give this verdict. The activists also represented themselves. So they were allowed to address the court directly and give statements explaining who they were and, and briefly why, why they were doing this, basically. In my fieldwork, the people I worked with, they rarely, you know, often the, the, the cases they were trialed for were in magistrates' court and they rarely could say why they did the action Climate change didn't figure at all, and it was all on sort of the technicalities of the direct action they'd done. I think it's it's it sort of sets an interesting precedent. This case, absolutely, it, it does. I mean, I'm not a lawyer. I don't think either of us are, so I, I'm not sure to what degree that precedent is uh, important from a legal perspective. But at the very least. I think it's a really interesting gauge on the general public's feeling about the threat that climate change poses mm. and potentially public attitudes towards large corporations like Shell. Yeah, the fact that they were acquitted by a jury of their peers does seem to suggest that public opinion is swaying towards groups like Extinction Rebellion in a way that, I don't know, at least for, for my sake, I, I couldn't have seen mm. five years ago. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's interesting because this sort of activism, it's been happening for so long that people have put, used their bodies and put their bodies on the line for various causes, but particularly related to environmental issues. It's been happening for a while. Extinction Rebellion is not the only group that does this. They do it in a very specific way, like they this is part of their strategy to get arrested, to take these cases, to escalate them to Crown Court and get, like you said, a, a gauge of the public opinion, get the public on their side and show that opinions are shifting. But these things don't always make the news. Some people can't always go through this whole process. It's such a draining, long process to take part in direct action, then go on trial, etc. It's even more interesting for me, you know, working with people who didn't often make big news but did similar kind of actions except they were targeting at a different company and protesting fracking but it's great to to have these discussions at least where's the line 
how do we use the courts? How do people engage with courts? It's super interesting. I think another interesting point to come out of this is also a discussion of the kind of people doing this kind of activism. And it might be a little uncomfortable to, to say is that the, the privileged position of the six in particular, because there were actually seven people who were on trial and one had to plead guilty because of other commitments that meant that they couldn't go to participate in the trial. I believe it was childcare commitments cited in the article. So it, it is important to, to keep in mind that this is not a case that shows that anyone can go out and even for the right cause or a cause that they believe is justified, commit this kind of action. That It's also there is some kind of privilege at play. Yeah, definitely. That's a really good point. Yeah, there was a seventh defendant who was also found. I think she was given a six months conditional discharge because she pleaded guilty, like you said, childcare reasons. And yeah, totally. Not everyone can afford to go through this sort of really lengthy process. And I, and that's some criticism that's been issued against Extinction Rebellion, that sometimes this discussion of privilege it doesn't figure as much. But broadly speaking, across different environmental groups, they, they all sort of have similar aims. One big one is just to make this a topic of discussion and sort of pressure governmental actors and non-governmental actors to shift behaviour. These sort of cases are growing and a lot of them are typically, you know, about responsibility for harm, raising awareness and all this sort of stuff. So it's part of a sort of broader use of the courts to make a point about climate change. I have the strong suspicion that a discussion about civil disobedience and criminal damage, as well as a whole lot of other activities, is going to follow right on the heels of this when we interview our special guest, for the episode. So if that's all for the news, why don't we head over there now? Our guest on the podcast today, much like last episode, is a scientist. Dr. Tim Hewlett is a postdoctoral researcher in astrophysics, though it is not in this role that he is involved with the world of energy. Tim is an activist, a co-founder of the group Scientist Rebellion. Scientist Rebellion is a group comprised of scientists and academics from around the world. Their rhetoric is potentially unsettling, calling on their communities to stand in resistance to the genocidal direction of our governments before it's too late. This resistance takes the form of non-violent civil disobedience, and the group has just conducted their first international series of actions, which included hundreds of academics around the world committing criminal damage, hunger striking, and doing teach-ins. Although these actions may appear extreme to some, to Tim and his colleagues, they seem necessary in order to drive the social, political, and institutional changes needed to combat the worsening climate crisis. Hello, Tim, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Tim, how long have you considered yourself an activist? In some respects, it's quite a recent change. I've, I've done bits and pieces here and there, I started getting involved a couple of years ago when Extinction Rebellion took off. Then I moved to Chile for uh, a year and a half. Um, and while I was there, there was a, a series of uprisings, which were really quite inspiring to watch and, and to be tangentially involved with. I mean, I, I could only be there in solidarity. I couldn't be any kind of a uh, more than that in that context, but I certainly learned a lot. Uh, and then when I came back for, for the pandemic fun times, I... Uh, co-founded Scientist Rebellion with, with another friend and 
That was in September of last year. And since then, it's been pretty full on all the time. In terms of being an activist, what does that mean to you? I think it's about trying to live ethically, to try to do what you can. I think, you know, a lot of people think that uh, the role of scientists is just to investigate the world and to kind of dispassionately tell people about what they find. I think there's something much deeper than that. I think that first and foremost, scientists are citizens. Most of us are funded from public money and science without society is nothing. Being an activist is about not just saying the facts of the matter, but living as if the facts of the matter are real and you believe them. So for me, uh, becoming an activist has been a journey of really accepting the catastrophe that we face and trying to do what I can politically to combat that and to drive the kind of social changes that we need. And then what was it that led you to, to found Scientist Rebellion rather than joining up with the, the other groups? I mean, in particular, is going to be sticking out in people's mind, Extinction Rebellion. Yeah, so we, we are very closely related to Extinction Rebellion. We share the same kind of principles and values and goals. But we have, you know, first of all, we have a quite specific argument that pertains to scientists about what you have to do to make science credible and about what the role of scientists is beyond just the academic realm. So that's quite niche. And second of all, there's, there's a kind of organizational aspect to it. Extinction Rebellion is really good in that it tries to be horizontal and decentralized. But that's a really hard thing to do structurally. So we've tried to take a kind of a technological approach to facilitating that. Uh, where you don't have central, you don't have any kind of central organizing or, or decision-making bodies, which Extinction Rebellion still has some aspects of that. So what what we use is is technology to to put people in contact um, with each other who are interested in taking action. Any kind of action designs um, are publicly listed, so anyone in the world can can see them, see how to do them, can sign up uh, to take action, and then we just put people in contact with each other locally or, or non-locally, depending on what the action is, um, so that they can network, get involved in their communities uh, that way, and we can share all these resources and techniques without having to have anyone tell you what to do at what time. And so, Tim, you mentioned the values and goals of Extinction Rebellion. So for people who might not know what Extinction Rebellion is, could you tell us a bit more about that and how different or similar it is to the values and goals of Scientist Rebellion? The, the principles and values of, of Extinction Rebellion are, are basically that we should focus on systems and not on individuals. We should understand the climate crisis as a systemic failing and as a, uh, a symptom of a wider economic and political system and, and not allow us to be kind of pigeonholed into individualization of the problem. We have to think big to be able to have any chance of, of dealing with these issues. So another aspect of, of what, um, which is related to, to that uh, systemic approach that Extinction Rebellion has kind of popularized quite successfully is the idea that decision-making power should be handed off to citizens' assemblies uh, on issues pertaining to the climate crisis. And that's about a systemic analysis of, of why is it that no action is being taken? Because the science is pretty clear. We, you know, we have a very good idea of where we're tending to in the future. Uh, we have a good idea of what a lot of the solutions are. And a lot of the, the solutions to these problems have compounding benefits. I mean, they have incalculable be benefits um, to society and, and to people. And yet they don't happen. And, and the analysis there is that the cause of that breakdown is, is essentially one of, of political corruption and economic um, influence. And so a citizen's assembly says, 
let's take a, a jury of, of people randomly selected from society to debate and discuss and learn about these issues and to decide what should be the pathway forward. There's two interrelated issues of the climate crisis, and one of them is a question of physics. What is going to happen um, to the environment, to the natural world, to, to the world which we all depend on to survive? And that's a question of just of physical science. And then there's a the question of our reaction to it, which is arguably even more important. One thing that I'm really keen to, to try and help people to connect is that the suffering that we already see in the world today, um, the political crises that we already see in the world today, they're not, they're not separate and distinct from the climate crisis. They're absolutely related. It's a really interesting point, actually, that there's interrelated crises that are more and more visible. Given how people usually think about science or scientific research as, I guess, something, you know, an endeavour that's supposed to be objective and on unbiased and really focused on, not on politics, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, there's, there's a really kind of old tradition in science and a, and a view that the way to be credible is to be objective, detached, apolitical, um, as if you can be just a, a totally independent observer uh, to what it is that you're observing. I, th I think there's a lot of power to that argument in in a typical setting. Um, if you're if you're studying, uh, if you're searching for some particle or something and you don't know whether it exists, if you if you have a, a motive to find it, if you have a political influence there, that's going to bias your science, and so that's bad. Um, but if you're saying we face an existential threat, and then you continue your life as normal, you don't you don't try to resist. The, the systems and the, uh, the political systems and the economic systems that are driving you to genocide, to unimaginable suffering, then I think that undermines the science. Um, a lot of people have, have said to us, how, why, why should I believe that things are as bad as they are? If that was true, why would scientists still be flying off around the world for conferences? Why would the people who apparently know most about this just continue with the same strategy that they've been going on for 30 or 40 years? The first IPCC report came out in 1990, and since then, 60% of all emissions have been released. So, so this strategy that we've taken as a community of, of, of you know, talking to government, talking to the media, publishing reports, it's, it's been a pretty unmitigated failure. So empirically, it seems to me that we need to change course. So you might hold to that ideology, to that to that philosophy that this is what science should be, but if we don't change tack, we will lose everything that science is. So what what is it that you're asking then the scientific community to do? Like concretely, what does it look like then to change course for scientists? Uh, we are asking for scientists to not just say we support civil disobedience, we support others taking direct action, but to actually put their bodies on the line, to, to put their mouths where their mouths are, and to get involved directly. And, you know, different people can get involved in different ways. There are lots of different contexts for different people, and so we shouldn't be prescriptive about what it is that people can do. And that's that's why in, in the International Rebellion that we just did, uh, we suggested three actions, you're free to do whatever you like, but, but we suggested three actions that we could help facilitate easily, and we tried to give that a, a range of ideas for that. So, so one of them is educational um, you know, teach-ins, which scientists generally love, uh, most people want to talk about, 
uh, the stuff that they understand. So what what are teachings? Never heard that word. Right. So it's it's just in in some setting it could be in in a, a lecture theatre or it could be in a, some other setting. It could be in a public forum or a public space. We produced a, a couple of uh, lectures and a, a lot of materials so that academics could go into these spaces, teach a lot of the facts about uh, the climate crisis, about the risks of what we face, um, and to talk about the political science of civil disobedience. Scientists alone in civil disobedience aren't going to be sufficient to change the system. But if people appreciate that the scientists are saying that one of the best ways that we can create social change here is through civil disobedience and nonviolent direct action. Historically, this has been one of the most effective means of driving positive social change uh, in the modern era. And they see that scientists are actually going out and doing that for themselves and living as if this is real. Then that should make it more credible. That should make some people appreciate, right, this is something I should do as well. Yeah, well, sorry, I interrupted you. What were the two other things you were suggesting people to do? So, so another one uh, was uh, hunger strike. So I, I went on hunger strike for four days. Around thirty other colleagues around the world did as well. And you know that that was a way of really just trying to help people to connect to the issues on a kind of emotional level, which isn't a scientist's normal kind of realm of operation. You know, one of one of the things that scares me most about climate breakdown is the possibility and the the likelihood of mass starvation. You know, something like 75% of the world's staple crops are grown in about 25% of the farmland. So you only need kind of a few extreme weather events simultaneously in the same year to have a catastrophic decline in food production. So for some people, particularly in a pandemic, if you can't go outside, um, you, you, don't, you don't want to be in face-to-face -face contact with people. A hunger strike was a way of saying, look, I'm willing to sacrifice something here and I think one thing that the, the pandemic has shown is that if people understand why they have to accept certain limitations, then most people will accept it. And finally, for, for others, you know, one, one really kind of effective way of getting the word out, of, of getting publicity, of, of driving conversation, uh, is, is through direct action. So the other thing that we suggested was people could print off big copies of, of climate science papers, important papers that show the kind of scale of the crisis that we face. And some also did kind of criminal damage by throwing paint onto public buildings as well to, to draw attention to this. It's a slightly contested, but, but broadly correct, I think, correlation between kind of numbers of arrests and probability of a movement achieving its goals. So it, 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 that's kind of a shorthand way of saying if you do highly disruptive actions, more people hear about it, some people get inspired. I was wondering if you'd heard about the recent police crime and sentencing bill that's being debated by government and parliament. And th is that something that you've been thinking about and how in ways it could affect Extinction Rebellion's actions and other forms of environmental action? Is that a thing that's... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's an absolutely authoritarian, um, anti-democratic bill. It has to be opposed. But the thing to say about it is that it's it's entirely expected. This is the timeline that that you would expect for a social movement which is gaining some some power. It, it is a sign of the moral vacuum. Um, at the heart of our political system, that instead of even trying really to seriously tackle these serious issues, 
Um, instead, they say, let's just silence the people who raise them. And so it's, it's expected because they are under political pressure. And so they are forced to try to delegitimize um, that protest. And, and ultimately, you know, as um, society becomes more fractured and more precarious with um, climate breakdown, we'll, we'll see increasing attempts to move in that direction with or without the social movements, you will see greater authoritarianism begin to take hold as insecurity grows. So we've got kind of two directions that we can travel here, towards a freer, more open, fairer, better, decent society, or sliding into something approaching fascism. How do you respond to people not being inspired by these actions, but actually getting frustrated, not understanding what you're trying to do? And my fieldwork, where I was working with the anti-fracking community in Lancashire. Often you'd hear people who stumble on a protest and who wouldn't agree with the activists and say things like, why can't you do something positive rather than disrupting? I think that that, that response itself demonstrates how little they have grasped the emergency. You, you don't worry about a splash of paint if you're considering the deaths of you and your children. Uh, this is the point we're making. This is inconsequential. You know, if you worry about property damage, then what about the, the 500 cities that are going to be lost to sea level rise this century, quite likely? That's, that's kind of a way into having those conversations. And a lot of those people you're not going to convince. There's a lot of emotions that go into this as well. I, I think a lot of the denialism around climate change is fueled by just a deep emotional desire to reject this reality because facing it is really tumultuous personally that's part of it another part of it is that just empirically this is a more successful way of drawing attention to the to the problems that you're trying to highlight um if you do something positive if you do some non-disruptive actions that just just benefit people and are nice you're not going to get in the press with that sometimes causing controversy makes people reevaluate, even if they don't like you for it and third of all you don't need a majority of people to participate in civil disobedience. You only need a relatively small fraction of people actually willing to go out and be on the streets to drive significant change. So you shouldn't worry about, I, I think, it's a little bit controversial, but I don't think you should worry too much about alienating some people a little bit. Because, you know, let's let's look at the, the polling data, for instance. According to, to a huge UN poll recently, one and a half million people around the world, more people in the UK accept that there is a climate emergency than anywhere else in the world, apparently. Now, that's despite the fact that the majority of people in the UK are pissed off at Extinction Rebellion. They don't like them, for the most part, but that doesn't mean that they haven't changed their minds because of them. So you shouldn't seek to be liked by the public. You should just seek to to demonstrate the reality. I think that's a really interesting point that you've just raised there, the the importance of or the relative unimportance of being liked as a, as a group. And it's the message that's important because that's something that I hadn't heard. But when you're explaining it, it makes a lot of sense. One question that I had about uh, this kind of concept of civil disobedience is how do you know where to draw the line and where is the right place to draw the line between doing these things that are frustrating and potentially PR gathering about your message versus actually doing harm to not only your organization, but potentially your your cause and to people who are 
not necessarily directly involved. Yeah, I think that's, that's a, there's a series of really difficult questions in there. Um, they're not simple. You know, I, I talk about non-violent direct action. Well, if you want to do non-violent direct action, you need to understand what violence is. And that's not a simple thing to define. You'll get a lot of debate and disagreement around that. The approach that we are taking is to say that you never know before you take an action for sure how it will be received. Even people who are highly experienced activists and very intelligent people will make mistakes. Uh, so we take the approach of, of radical decentralization, where nobody can tell you whether or not you have the right to act. If there is an action that you think is right and good and, and you or others want to go and do it, then you should and we'll support you in that. That's another slight deviation from Extinction Rebellion, where if something has been negatively received, there's a strong kind of impulse to reject it and say, well, yeah, we've got that wrong, we won't do that, sorry about that. Whereas if Extinction Rebellion took the other approach and said, no, look how bad the crisis is, you may disagree with these tactics, but it pales into insignificance compared to what we face. Let's stay focused here. I think that would be a more effective and powerful argument than, than conceding that ground. On the other hand, if somebody were, were committing violence in the name of Scientist Rebellion, for instance, how do you deal with that then? Our kind of proposed mechanism for dealing with that is, first of all, we have open-sourced actions, so you can see what the kind of action designs are that are, are kind of sanctioned in a way. If somebody thinks that one of those actions is actually violent, then we will form a, a people's assembly in, internally within the group, where just random activists from the group will meet up and debate whether or not it is violent. Um, and if it is, we remove it from the website. Then your approach to defining violence is very much an internal definition. Yeah, some people, for instance, quite a relatively extreme view would be that, that criminal damage is, is violence, but throwing paint is a form of violence. And I think most people reject that because it doesn't harm anyone. Um, most people understand violence to, to ensue harm to, to some person. But there's a whole spectrum within there. You know, if, if you are causing intimidation or if there's, if there's a threat inherent in that or behind that, then that, that could constitute a form of violence. These are questions up for debate, and I don't think any individual has the answer. But it's interesting because it seems like your activism has different aims, right? You're trying to call on public bodies, institutions, the government to, like you said before, put in place bold regulations. And I'd be interested to know what kind of regulations you're talking about. Uh, but also another aim is to raise awareness with, you know, other scientists, with the public. And it seems like alienating a part of the population, like you said, it seems sort of counterproductive in a way, because there could be people who support what you're doing, but see certain disruptions to public spaces as unnecessary and would say it should be more targeted to specific bodies, companies, to sort of refine who you're trying to annoy and who you're trying to get on board. But I don't know what kind of actions you've done with Scientist Rebellion, which institutions you've targeted. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they've been, they've been fairly varied in terms of, of, of the, the targets. Some of them have been scientific institutions to say, look, science needs to do more, and scientists need to do more to directly go into our communities. Some of it has been government buildings and, and, and institutions, one of our activists blockaded Downing Street, for instance, as well. So they're quite varied. I, I think the point that I want to make in response to that is that if you are just targeting uh, the obvious culprits, I mean, there's absolutely power in that, and I think that should be done. But I think it, it 
runs a risk of missing a deeper systemic critique. I think something that we need to appreciate is just how much needs to change if we're going to have a hope. You know, we're seeing ecological destruction on a, on a scale that's unprecedented in, in human history outside, well, in human history certainly, in, in geological history almost unprecedented. We have a, a, an economic system that is dependent and reliant on perpetual growth, endless exponential economic growth, which is just an impossibility on a finite planet. I mean, it's just a logical nonsense. Talking about science particularly, I think what we've seen over the last few decades is a, a transformation of science where it has itself become neoliberalized. Um, and so look at science in the university and how that relates to, to the economy more broadly. Now, why is it that science is funded so much more than any other, any other research area, any other area of study in the university? Is it because the governments have a, a deep commitment to empirical truth? Of course it's not. I mean, it, when you give them inconvenient empirical realities, they're ignored, sidelined, belittled, undermined. No, it's, it's because investment in science leads to greater growth. It's because science is useful for that kind of economic um, imperative. There, there are so many different strands of, of these relationships, economically and politically, that need to be questioned, and many of them need to be dismantled, um, that if you only focus on uh, the obvious culprits, you, you will fail, I think. So then what does successful action look like to you on this kind of systemic scale on this kind of international scale what is the the end goal as it were it's it's hard to talk about end goals because i don't think the future looks pretty even in the best case scenario i i don't think that there is a way to avoid um mass suffering uh that doesn't mean that we can't alleviate a lot of harm so we can think about kind of short-term successes and more long-term successes so in the short term the goals are to bring more people into the movement, to build a, a really substantial climate movement that actually uh, threatens the established order and tries to, to push that change. I mean, the, the, the dream kind of scenario would be uh, that power is handed off to uh, citizens' assemblies to make these kind of decisions um, so that you can bypass that layer of corruption. Um, you know, the idea that we would still be giving £10 billion a year to fossil fuels in, in subsidies to fossil fuel companies um, in any kind of rational system, in any kind of system that wasn't corrupted beyond the point of use is is ridiculous. I don't think there's any chance that ordinary people whose, whose political careers don't depend on satisfying the ultra-wealthy and satisfying industrial giants would make these decisions. And so the ultimate goal is to transform politics so that the needs of people are actually met. What you've said there kind of relates back to what our guest last episode, uh, Professor John Irvine, said when talking about kind of how we got here and why society has resisted change. He said that he felt that carbon emissions haven't been priced out at, at the correct value for a long, long time now. And one way to kind of incentivize systemic change in terms of how we conceive of energy in particular would be to start properly valuing emissions the cost of emissions in particular in the right way because as soon as we start doing that then all of a sudden the incentives to converting energy systems uh, in particular it makes so much more economical sense just on the face of it 
so yeah, I, I think that that would be a really easy thing to do very quickly. To me, it seems like that that would be a, a very simple thing just to do to drive kind of quick change. But it's also kind of a broader thing of it. It's it's not just that carbon isn't properly priced in in the economic language. Everything that isn't the thing that you want to produce and isn't the company and whatever the company is doing is called externalities. Um, and externalities just means everything that we depend upon. It means the natural world, the environment. So in, in lots of different areas of, of commerce and, and the economy, the real costs of business are hidden. So that's true when, when you see McDonald's or whatever cutting down huge swathes of the Amazon. Um, we, we may be approaching a tipping point for the Amazon that it's close to collapse. That, that has immeasurable cost. I mean, genuinely, completely immeasurable. But, but it's called an externality. And that's not just about carbon. That's a, that's a broader thing of how re, our economic system functions. This sort of focus on the social and the environmental, how those two things sort of come together. Do you have any, do you work with other organizations, other environmental movements or social justice movements? Well, we're still relatively new, uh, so we're we're building some of those relationships. Um, it's it's absolutely my hope that we will make strong links on those things because I I think that's absolutely essential um, in connecting those issues. But also, I mean, that entails a lot of political education, and a lot of that is for scientists. You know, scientists tend to, I mean, not universally, of course, but they tend to come from relatively kind of privileged backgrounds, and we have relatively privileged lives. Those kind of social concerns aren't typically at the forefront of scientists' minds. And so I think we need to build those links so that that, that cooperation emerges. And those, I mean, certainly my understanding of this has evolved over the last couple of years. So I hope that can be universalized. <laughs> so Tim, last episode, we covered in our news segment the... Uh, recent UN State of the Climate report from 2020 that still, although it painted a fairly dire picture, still had some hope that we might hit these targets with not necessarily too much significant change from the course we're on or the course that governments plan to be on. From what you've been saying over the course of this interview, uh, it doesn't seem like you guys subscribe to that positive outlook or relatively positive outlook. It would be lovely if we could keep the world to 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees. Um, well, it wouldn't be lovely. I mean, 2 degrees is still catastrophic. Yeah, so, so I mean, first of all, um, there's a few things to consider here. One of the things is that if you look at the, the 2018 IPCC report, that's, it's a kind of, it's a fusion of, of a scientific report with a political underpinning. It's, it's a political context. Um, and so it has to be partially understood as a political document. And so politically, the point is, it's all framed around 1.5 versus 2 degrees. And politically, what do we have to do to get there? And one of the things that they invoke to be able to reach those limits is say that we will deploy mass carbon capture and storage and carbon extraction technologies in order to to bring those temperatures down. Um, and these these technologies... Carbon capture storage, some some kind of exist, and it's not entirely sure how effective they are, but they, they do exist a bit. Um, carbon extraction technologies, apart from trees, don't exist. So it's it's really just a kind of hope, like, well, we have to do that, otherwise we cannot achieve these limits. So we have to figure out that technological um, feat. There's a term in climate science called the equilibrium climate sensitivity, and it, it means how much warming do you get per doubling of the atmospheric uh, greenhouse gases. The kind of standard uh, estimates of that 
are somewhere between around 2 and 4.5 degrees centigrade per doubling. And we've already doubled. So without extracting carbon, we can expect a minimum of 2 degrees warming. Now lots of things go into this kind of calculation, and, and one of those things which has been increasingly recognized in the last few years is the effect of feedback mechanisms within the climate system. And, and there's a kind of lag in these reports very often, that, that they're relying on science that was maybe published in 2010 or so, uh, but we've had some really influential papers coming out in 2017, 2018, 2019, talking about these feedback mechanisms. So let me explain what they are a little. Feedback mechanisms are where a bit of heating causes some process in the environment which accelerates the heating, and then that accelerates the, the process which is accelerating the process and you get a runaway reaction. So a kind of easy one to understand relatively is the melting of the Arctic. So as the ice retreats in the Arctic, less of the sun's light is, is reflected away. Water is really absorbent of radiation and ice is super reflective. So the less ice you have, the faster the planet heats up. So that's, that's a runaway process. Um, but there are lots of these processes and we're seeing really alarming signals that they are being surpassed already. And lots of this is happening decades earlier than expected in the climate models. But it has it has more knock-on effects beyond that. So so as you lose the ice, the water around it, the temperature of the water can rise up to maybe you know, 10 degrees centigrade. And, and that threatens methane deposits. That could be destabilized by the melting of the Arctic. And so you get a sudden plume of methane, which is an extremely potent greenhouse gas, which could cause rapid warming. So there's, there's a lot of uncertainty around these things, but the, the basic point is that we shouldn't be looking at what is the best case scenario and assuming that that will happen. We should be looking at what are the risks and then taking actions that are appropriate. When you get into a car, you put a seatbelt on, not because you think you're going to crash, but because it's a precautionary principle. It's, it's better safe than sorry. Uh, we're in a way worse situation here where we know it's going to be bad, and the only question is, is this going to be an existential threat, or is this just going to be horrible? I think that analogy works really well. You hope for the best while planning for the worst when we do a lot of tasks. For example, something as everyday as driving, ironically, a car that runs on fossil fuels. <laughs> and why should this or why should any collective action? Uh, we've just seen, as you've said uh, earlier, a year where we've spent a lot of the time in lockdown not because there's a huge risk to us as individuals necessarily, but because there's a risk to people around you. And in the worst case scenario, it's quite bad, even if it's a low percentage. So perhaps it is time that we start as a society planning for the worst rather than just expecting everything to be yeah. fine. I mean, it's it's certainly, I'm afraid it's certainly not going to be fine. It's often the kind of words or messaging that comes with the with f facing this reality that you're telling us about you know the words like you said breakdown um collapse um extinction and that's where a lot of pushback comes as a people kind of calling that sort of discourse of, if not alarmist a discourse that crushes any hope another critique it, against that sort of messaging is that it puts the collapse in the future it feels sometimes that you're in a lose-lose because you get pushback from people reticent to acknowledge the sort of reality that you're describing, but you also get pushback from people who are working to avoid that sort of reality. Yeah, it's 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 really not easy. Um, 
I think particularly in the kind of scientific community there there are I, I think it's a kind of elitism. It's it's where scientists say we should control the flow of information about what is best for people to hear. And I think that's just that's unethical. Um and and I think it's misplaced. Um so I think what we should be doing is um unflinchingly telling the reality as we see it. Um we shouldn't try and sugarcoat it. Um, and if that is terrifying and, and painful for people to hear, then that's because reality is terrifying and painful. One one example I, w- I wanted to give of climate breakdown in the world today, um, which I think is, is under-recognized, um, and which ties together a lot of elements of climate breakdown, is the example of the Syrian conflict, the civil war. So that was preceded by the biggest drought in the region on record, and as a consequence of that, you saw uh, something like two-thirds of the crops and about three-quarters of the livestock died out across huge swathes of the country. And one and a half million people were driven to the cities to look for food, to look for work. And it, it was that, that food and water insecurity that led to that civil unrest and led to civil war in the end. You see the knock-on effects of that all around the world, on, on our politics in Britain, in Europe, uh, and elsewhere. So, yeah, absolutely, it's not a problem of the future. That drought would not have been anywhere near as severe without the the trends, the long-term trends uh, that are coming about because of anthropogenic climate breakdown. The influence of climate change on these huge like social political events is observable, but there's lots of other factors as well that, that come into play. But it is, it's a good thing to, to be reminded of the environment that a lot of us see as a background on which the political and the social unfold, the environment actually the, becomes the event um, and the, the crisis. And so in that sense, they are all interrelated. So earlier in uh, our discussion, you talked about positive action not necessarily having the same results as confrontation and disobedience. How would you respond to any charges that saying that this is a systemic problem and only a systemic problem kind of absolves you of your or you and your organization of any obligation to act positively and to try and create change yourselves or act in certain ways that may make a difference even if it's only a small one first of all i would say that i think the personal and the political are are so closely intertwined that you can't really separate them um, so if you do get politically active in this way, you will find personal changes follow all the other way around in some cases. Second of all is that, you know, I don't mean to denigrate those kind of positive actions that you're talking about at all. I think they absolutely have their place. And and teachings, I think, are, are a, some kind of example of that. You know, it's not disruptive. It's not harmful to anything. It's just education. And education is good. And similarly, you know, a hunger strike is, is a way of trying to engage with people on an emotional level. It doesn't harm anyone else. It's only you who experiences that. So, so I, yeah, I, I certainly wouldn't say that actions can only be disruptive or can only be combative. And, and, and yes, absolutely, I think that um, we should focus politically on, on systems. But as, as, as we say, you know, everything has to change. And there are things that you can do to to dramatically reduce your carbon footprint if, and you might find that that makes you feel much better about yourself if you do them. I guess, I guess, Tim, what I'm trying to get at 
I mean, there are organizations around the world that have set up huge tree planting programs. You've got projects like the Trillion Tree Project in Pakistan. How do you answer kind of critics that say that larger organizations such as Extinction Rebellion, such as uh, Scientist Rebellion, should be involved in those positive things as well as potentially civil disobedience and the disruptive actions? Like I say, we're, we're, we try to be completely decentralized. And so any, any members who uh, think that that is the right approach to take would be encouraged to do so. Um, it's not where I think I would put my energy personally, but that's, that's not to say that it's not worthwhile. I mean, first of all, we have to stop the destruction. And second of all, we have to try to rejuvenate what we've destroyed. So if you're if you're still doing the destruction and then on the other hand trying to oh well we planted some trees over here so never mind that we destroyed the Amazon that's not a tenable position um, you have to do both but yeah I, I take your point that, that there are programs like that that we could try to get more involved with but volunteers planting trees won't be sufficient we we need some kind of governmental intervention and regulation to stop the destruction of the natural world and then to to create mass programs of rewilding of leaving huge areas of the sea fallow of letting large large areas of the world go back to nature you've got to bear in mind that um you know if, if you plant a new forest it's decades before uh, that has a real effect in terms of the atmospheric carbon and there's a limited amount that that can do um, regardless, we should still do it, but given that you know I, I'm worried about social breakdown on the scale of ten or twenty years, if it takes twenty years before your new plantations actually start to to be felt, then it's not going to be adequate. So then, what can individuals do? Yeah, so I mean, the two biggies are if if you fly, try not to, and try to switch to a, a plant based diet. I mean, those are the two kind of big individual changes that actually affect your carbon footprint. And pretty much everything else is window dressing. But but again, we, we, we can't fall into a trap of, of, of accepting the individualization of responsibility here. Yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy the extent to which corporations and governments have been able to individualize the climate change fight. I mean, even the term that we throw around, even in this conversation so freely, the idea of a carbon footprint was invented by an energy company. Yeah. In an ad campaign. And something like the wealthiest 10%, I, I, I might get the figures a little bit wrong here, I think it's the wealthiest 10% of the world uh, are responsible for the 60% of the emissions. So, you know, the idea that um, people living in, in relative poverty um, should change their lifestyles, um, and that's, that's the solution to this problem, is an insult. Uh, or the idea that this is a product, which is a very common idea and needs to be combated, um, that this is a product just of, of overpopulation is, a, is an absolute myth. You know, most of the world lives um, within the kind of planetary boundaries. It's, it's only really in, in, in the wealthy sections, well, the wealthy parts of the world that we see this extraction and this destruction. Um, and the destruction and extraction that happens all over the world is to fuel that lifestyle of, of a tiny minority. Which then goes back to your idea of needing to separate politics and in particular policy about climate change from the influence of these companies and these individuals which is uh, as you said earlier one of the the main aims of uh, of your movement i had a question that's maybe a bit more personal on you know you've described how this sort of bleak 
future that's coming our way, this reality that and that is already existing. How do you sort of manage thinking about these things? Does it overwhelm you? Like, how do you deal with it? Yeah, at times badly. Um, <laughs> um, no, absolutely. At times it does overwhelm me. Yeah, the future is a scary place and the present doesn't look great either in some respects. I think actually I, I have found on balance that being politically active is extremely beneficial. And I think a lot of activists find this, that for your mental well-being, actually just doing something about it, taking some form of control, even when you know the chances of success are, are narrow, just the act of, of trying to live consistently with what you know is enriching. I was wondering, the first thing I thought when I saw the name Scientist Rebellion, I was like, oh, but scientist means so many different things. So I was just curious about the kind of research you're doing and if there's any link with your activism or if it's sort of separate for you. It's pretty separate. I, I research black holes. So, it, yeah, there's, there's not a clear kind of direct link. Um, we, we try to take a really broad view of what a uh, scientist means um, because this needs to be a broad movement. Um, and because people who are, who are scientifically educated hold really important positions in, in the economy and in society. And we have, we have authority and legitimacy as a consequence of that, which, which can be used positively. I, th I think, you know, the closest link for me to why, how my science led to, to this activism is, is that, that experience of seeing the disconnect between, um, what scientists know about the world and, and how they behave in it, how we behave in it, um, and just the incongruence. I think, um, one thing that academics have is, is, big kind of platforms from which to rally, um, educate, to inform. Um, and we have a kind of legitimacy that means that when we take action, when we do kind of high sacrifice um, activities, uh, it surprises people and they stop and take listen to in a way that they often won't um, for other people because it's assumed that, well, first of all, they know what they're talking about. And second of all, you can't demonize these people as hippies or something. Uh, but your organization is not restricted to scientists and academics, is it, Tim? Uh, no. So, so you know, one of the things that we really want to do is is to embed scientists in activist communities so that you get that two-way educational process. So, yeah, a, a number of the people who, who we work with aren't scientists and aren't academics, but we still have that kind of direct appeal to academics. Of, we should be leading the charge because we we purportedly know the most about this so we have to live consistently with that else other people won't trust the science if anyone listening to this right now is interested in what you've been saying they may be a scientist they may not be a scientist how would you recommend uh they could get involved so there there are loads of ways to be involved you don't you don't have to dive straight in with going and getting arrested or going on hunger strike or something like that um anything that people can contribute is is gladly accepted i mean the simplest thing to do is is you can check out our website scientistrebellion.com um and on on the front page there we've got a, a secure sign up form so that's probably the easiest way or you can email us at um scientistrebellion at protonmail.com um and ask more uh, and of course uh we'll include the link to the website as well as the email address in this episode's webpage over on the Energy Ethics website. So if you do want to be involved with that or you do want to learn more about Scientist Rebellion, 
you can just head over there. I, I really want to thank you for, for making yourself available and joining us uh, today, Tim. It's been a really uh, thought-provoking and over, I mean, just overall provocative chat. Thank you for having me. It's been really nice. So, Sarah, how did uh, that discussion with Tim compare to the, the other activists that you've spoken to throughout your studies? Yeah, it was a great discussion. And honestly, I could talk with Tim all day about these issues because in the end, climate activism and you know energy transitions relate to so many other social issues. And it's sort of what I found in my fieldwork as well. People were resisting hydraulic fracturing for gas for a variety of reasons. And they had lots of, you know, conflict and contradictions and dilemmas they had to face. And it was sort of a wider question on, on lifestyles, how they live in. Yeah, so it wasn't just about the energy source or the emissions. I, I don't have that same experience of being involved in activist communities, but I, I really think that talking to, to Tim kind of brought a lot of the ideas that they're just trying to get out there and that are worth making sure that people know about kind of really drove those home to me. So we will make sure that we put all the links to Scientist Rebellion in the webpage for this episode over on the Energy Ethics website. Before we go, Sarah, is there anything that you'd like to plug, anything that you've got coming up? I'd like to say two things. One is the Art of Energy Gallery that we put together earlier this year uh, in collaboration with artists and researchers from the centre. You can head to the website to learn more about that art gallery we're going to try and develop it further throughout the year so and the second thing is the energy ethics conference at the end of this year that we're working on and the title for it will be energy transitions and planetary futures so hopefully by the time this podcast goes out we'll have a bit more information about that on the website and a call for abstracts for it and of course, if this uh, podcast does come out slightly before the official announcement or the official call for abstracts for EE 2021, you'll just need to keep your eyes peeled on our social media or check out our website for more details because that will be coming very soon. If you've made it this far through the episode, do go over and check out all the stuff that we've got over on the Energy blog. Hopefully, again, by the time this comes out, We'll have the full post about the new catalytic material put together by the St. Andrews-led research team, uh, which will be co-authored by myself. And I guess that means all that's left is for me to thank my co-host, Sarah. Thank you very much. Uh, We hope to get you back here soon. It's been great fun and I've learned a lot, so I hope to be back. Of course, we'll have you back. Thank you very much for listening. I've been your host, James. Don't forget to check out the other episodes of All About Energy wherever you found this podcast. You can, of course, rate us on iTunes or whatever other podcast app you use. It really helps us get a bit more exposure for what we're doing, so that'd be really helpful. But until next time, we hope you hear from us soon.